This is an ABC podcast. Hello, when did you get back to work? Has a sheen from your summer holiday perhaps started to fade? Well, it's not uncommon to take time to gear up for work after the break. And in fact, January is the most popular month to think about giving your job the flick. So on This Working Life, we're ramping up the motivation. I'm Lisa Leong and with me is sports and organisational psychologist Travis Kemp and Chris Lowe, head of Vibe, yes, that's a job title, at digital graphic design company Canva, which has been voted Australia's best place to work twice. Hello both. Hi Lisa, how are you? Good. Travis, so January is the most popular time to change jobs and file for divorce, I hear. Why is that? Mm -hmm. What happens over the break? I think people go and sit on a rock and they contemplate their lives and they they decompress after what for many people is a really intense year uh, that ramps up towards the end of it. And then when they create that space and they start reflecting and asking questions they didn't have time for before, sometimes the answers that they come up with, they're unexpected. And they really get in touch with the fact that what they're doing is perhaps not aligned with what they really want to be doing and they're not as happy as they thought they were. And so what's actually happening there? So I think um, when we take the busyness of day-to-day out, we take the responsibilities and the accountabilities of my day-to-day out of the picture and allow myself time to reflect on what are my core values, what are my core beliefs, how do I see myself, how do I want to be spending my time, what's my contribution. When they don't line up with my behaviour, that's what we call cognitive dissonance. So where, where my, you know, my thoughts and my beliefs are inconsistent with what I'm actually doing, humans really struggle to sit in that space for a long period of time and they want to get back to an equilibrium and a consistency. And that's what summer holidays basically provides a lot of people with, the opportunity to reflect on that and, and surface that dissonance. And is changing jobs the only way to deal with this cognitive dissonance, Travis? No, not all the time. I mean, quite often it's the way that I approach the job. It's the way that I engage um, personally with the people around me. Um, sometimes, of course, there's a, there's a misalignment between the values and the beliefs and the, and the behaviours acceptable in an organisation and, and what I want to be lining up with. And in those situations, then I might have to consider moving organisations. But there's two sides to this um, story that we quite often forget. And that is the way that I'm showing up and the the way that I'm engaging and the way that I'm managing myself in that sort of situation is another lever that I can play around with. And look, we're not always perfectly well behaved ourselves. And sometimes we need to take a look at ourselves. How did you come to work at Canva when it was a startup, Chris? I owned a restaurant in Surrey Hills and... uh, I had it for about five years and two of the founders, Mel and Cliff, were some of my best customers and uh, when they heard I was going to sell, they essentially said, we'd love it if you came, took the vibe from your restaurant and put it into our office. So, yeah, that's how I came to be at Canva. And I see that's relating to your title there. Can you give us more flavour of the head of vibe? What do you do? Yeah, so... The Vibe team is a team of about 24 people globally and our mission is to build a workplace where people do the best work of their lives. So that has so many different elements to it from a health and wellbeing program where we have gyms and uh, we cook for over 860 staff globally every day. We um, have a farm in Sydney that grows 80% of our Sydney 
veg for breakfast and lunches. We uh, run celebrations and events and support 400 clubs from nail club to cryptocurrency club to wine club. Um, we brew our own beer. We have cafes and bars and vacation care for kids. We uh, support uh, dogs and cats to be in the office and <laughs> indigenous art programs and cultural celebrations of all kinds. And it's a very varied but uh, really exciting place to be. And yeah. It sounds incredible, but what extent do these kinds of incentives or perks feed into staff motivation, do you think? Well, we really try and focus on the values at the core of these amazing initiatives. So we don't just randomly pick perks. Mm. Um, we hone in on the Canva values and the kind of psychological safety or inspiration that's built and cultivated through all these activities. We've heard from Chris on the importance of aligning values at the workplace with personal values. What does the research tell us, Travis, about the psychology of motivation when it comes to work? Yeah, so um, a broader picture, you know, intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation has always been a question. And mm. we know that intrinsic motivation is something that comes from within, you know, it comes from a, a deep core at my centre. And the more that I can be behaving in line with that intrinsic motivation, the stickier that is and the more effective that I'm going to be. So we're constantly in organisations trying to tap into that. And when we um, line up individuals' values with the values of the organisation, we're discovering how important this is now, um, then the likelihood of that intrinsic motivation surfacing increases. So that's why, you know, we talk a lot about values in organisations now, but, you know, there's still that challenge of executing on those values behaviourally in the organisation. I don't always do what I say that I would like to do, and that is a challenge. And Chris, can you give us an example of how this intrinsic motivation alignment has worked for you at Canva? I think one of the most important elements that I see in the workplace is that uh, goals are also hugely important to people's sense of purpose. And if we can really clearly articulate how every individual contributes to the company's foundational or aspirational goals... Um, that's a really powerful place to be in where when you wake up in the morning, you know that you're contributing to something amazing and whether that's cultivating values or whether that's achieving uh, the financial or commercial goals of the, of the business, they're all really powerful motivations. And um, if you can uh, get to the end of the day and say to yourself, oh, uh, I had a great day today. I felt so inspired um, and uh, so so connected to the company. Um, that's a really powerful place to be. But also, I didn't have a great day today, but tomorrow I can come back with the tools in my belt to make that day better. And I think that's um, kind of the goals and the values working together. You're listening to This Working Life on RN. We're speaking with Travis Kemp, sports and organisational psychologist, and Chris Lowe, head of Vibe at digital graphic design company Canva. And we're talking about motivation as we start a new work year. Travis, so culture and values aside, what can I do today to increase my motivation? You know, if I'm feeling like my job is becoming a bit of a daily grind. 
Yeah, so so the point that was made about um, goal setting is really, really important. You know, there's a, a lot of research being done on goal setting and it might surprise a lot of people, but if, if you set a goal, you're more likely to work towards it. And if you're more likely to work towards it, you're more likely to attain it. it sounds like rocket science, but a lot of people forget to do it. So, um, you know, setting up at the beginning of the year, what is it that you actually want to achieve this year? And then getting a little bit specific about what that looks like. Because um, the, the fuzzier the goal, the less likely I'm going to pursue it and the less likely I'm going to achieve it. So some specifics around what that goal might look like, um, line it up with what my values are and what I, my bigger purpose is, if that makes sense, and, um, and work diligently towards that and it's more than likely going to occur. So that's really important to maintain that sort of sense of intrinsic motivation. How often am I looking and refreshing my goals in accordance with my long-term uh, vision? Yeah, so that varies for individuals, but you know they've got to be relatively short and achievable. There's got to be it's got to be chunkable if that makes sense. Because if you're going for three months without actually tracking how you're tracking against your goal, then that that's not really going to help you to lead there. So, so chunking it back into smaller bite-sized pieces on a you know for some people a day-to-day basis, but you know a week-to-week basis to see how I'm travelling. All important things in terms of increasing the likelihood of succeeding. And if you're a manager of a team and you can see that some of your team members' motivation is a little low, what can be done there? Yeah, so the first thing that most people forget to do is just have a conversation and just call it out and say, you know, look, I'm just noticing that you're not firing on all cylinders. Is there something you want to talk about? And it it sounds a bit strange, but a lot of people forget to have that conversation, forget to create that space. And we were talking about psychological safety before. Psychological safety comes from this... Um, this trust that we develop between managers and their, and their direct reports. And if that trust isn't there, we, we call it the, the leadership alliance, if that makes sense. If that alliance isn't built, it's really hard for me to be vulnerable and share my, my struggles in that conversation. So if uh, for, for managers who are struggling to have that conversation, wind back and look at the quality of the relationship and there might need to be some remedial work done on the relationship before I can get to the point where I can even have that conversation. So let's talk about the relationship between pay and motivation, because a lot of people think that financial incentives are the be-all and end-all. What does your um, research and uh, experience say about that, Travis? Yeah, so money's important to people. There's no question about that. We need it. It's a, you know, it has a function in our society, but the um, the belief that it is the be all and end all in terms of motivator that uh, a bigger the, the bigger the number the more the motivation I'll get that's a, that's not supported with evidence in fact it, in some cases it's the opposite and um, there are many more important things for example like making a contribution um, that's valued autonomy the ability to, to be able to decide how I go about doing things um, again being able to contribute to my own goal setting and my own goal striving. Um, this notion of being recognised and valued in the organisation. These are all important things um, that, you know, contribute to motivation that uh, got nothing to do with money. Are people surprised when you tell them that? Um, at one level, yes. You know, most people have an intuition that it's not just about the money, even though we spend a lot of time talking about the money. And, you know, the, the, the most effective decisions that are made around who I work with, how I work and, and, and what I do with my career have a money component to it, but the majority of it is, is this the right organisation for me? Am I going to be happy there? Can I make a contribution? And I'm, am I going to feel fulfilled? For me, like clearly mapping out growth trajectories for everyone in the company is also hugely important. So 
not so much how much money you work uh, worth and or how much money you earn and um, what the pay rises look like, but how you can continually improve and add value to the company that can also be re reflected financially. If we kind of clearly understand that and communicate that around the company, that's a really good place to be in, I think. How do you do that, Chris? Is that formalised? Yeah, it is formalised. We have very regular pay reviews for all the staff and uh, we, we do break up performance into two parts. Um, one is a values assessment and um, one is uh, a performance assessment that's linked very directly to goal achievement. How um, often is that done? Quarterly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, we're constantly reviewing and constantly keeping dialogue open between managers and staff. And that's a ongoing and uh, difficult, challenging process that we're always working on. Let's flip it now. What kills our motivation at work, Travis? Well, a lot of people um, <laughs> arguably say that people leave their bosses and, and not the organisation, and there's a fair Ooh. bit of evidence for that. So working for somebody who um, is misaligned in terms of our values, who, who doesn't provide that autonomy, support, who is critical, micromanaging, um, that's almost a guarantee to, to snuffle any motivation that exists at all and it'll happen incredibly quickly. So, um, you know, this anxiety and there's a term that I've started to use, anxious leadership, that starts to emerge. You know, when, when leaders get scared and they want to hold on to things and control things, that's usually a bad sign and it usually has bad effects. And to be specific, Travis, do you have a suggestion for either a mantra or a tip to handle those low motivation moments? <laughs> A panacea is what we need, right? But, Just uh, a pill would be good, <laughs> yeah. thank you. A pill would be great. Mm. I think that the, the, the most powerful recognition um, comes in understanding that you will have low days and the expectation of perpetual highness and happiness um, is a really dangerous space to be. So when we do have those days, having a plan to make it through and executing on that plan, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but just getting through is the absolutely critical point. And actually, when you think about aligning to purpose, it's not all about sort of the dopamine highs or the highs of uh, your body going, oh, this is really fun. It actually can be quite hard work, isn't it, sometimes? Absolutely. Look, having been an ultra-endurance athlete, I spent a lot of my time in pain and suffering and not enjoying myself. Um, but the bigger picture was worth it. And sometimes we forget to attend and, and focus and remind ourselves of the bigger picture. I remember in the 90s, we used to have a reward and recognition program and recognition was seen as the really big thing. Travis, I think it's changed a little bit so that there's a distinction between recognition and appreciation. Can you tell us about a little bit about that distinction now? Yeah, so recognition used to be the, getting the, the Rolex at 25 years service, right? And um, a public display of people valuing you hanging around for a long period of time. I think that's shifted to a more regular and, and more intimate and more consistent acknowledgement of the contribution that you make and the, and the difference that you make in your day to day and reminding people and, and guiding them through feedback as to what does add value and how they are showing up that is valuable and helping them to do more of that. Yeah, I can't agree more fast and free feedback is... Uh, incredibly powerful and if we have that kind of psychological safe space where people feel able to to do that 
then, yeah, again, we're in a really good position to succeed. Well, I love and appreciate you both for coming on the program today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks, Travis Kemp, sports and organisational psychologist, and Chris Lowe, head of Vibe at digital graphic design company Canva. You can contact him on LinkedIn to um, ask him about his title. (laughs) One thing that does motivate us at This Working Life is hearing from you. Drop us a line or just head to our program page. How do you feel when you have to have a difficult conversation with someone? Maybe it's a staff member who's underperforming or a colleague who continues to push their work onto you or even just the person who sits next to you who has those long personal conversations on the phone for all to hear. With me to navigate this issue is Karen Gately. Karen worked in HR for 20 years with some of the world's largest companies, including the Vanguard Group, and she founded human performance agency, Corporate Dojo. Hello, Karen. Hello. Oh, this is a goodie, isn't it? This is a tough one. Yes. Mm. So I looked back at my history and I think I've been an avoider of difficult yeah. conversations. So I want to be better at this. So what should I do first? The starting point is to understand why you avoid the conversations. And, you know, I work with a lot of leaders to understand why is it actually difficult, specifically why is it difficult. And what I've found over the years is that there tends to be two sources of fear, fear for me, fear for you. So I'm concerned about how am I going to feel? Am I going to be able to get my words out? Um, You know, if they challenge me and I feel like suddenly I'm wrong, am I going to know what to say? Are they going to get aggressive? And again, how will I respond to that? So there's all of these fears about my readiness, my capability, even being able to find the words to articulate this well. The other side of the fear is, how are you going to feel? You know, am I going to upset you? Are you going to feel like I'm not being fair? You know, I have leaders say to me, oh, now's not a good time to have that conversation because they've got a really important project to get done. I just don't want to upset them. And, you know, so they'll avoid the conversation. Um, The harsh reality, though, is that in most instances when they've done that, the person feels really betrayed that they hadn't been told sooner. And another excuse or explanation is, um, well, I want to be a nice person. It's not a nice thing to do, but I'm sure, in fact, it's not. It's actually the kind thing to do. And this is, again, a conversation I have with leaders all the time. Um, You know, we're not here to be people's friends. We're here to enable them to be the best possible version of themselves and to thrive at work and hopefully, you know, by extension in life. And if we're robbing them of insight to the truth, if we're not holding up the mirror and helping them to see what is serving them and what isn't serving them, we are not doing our job. We are not stepping in and serving them faithfully. So, you know, whenever leaders are scared about, is this a nice thing to do? I ask them to reflect on how do you think it feels to suddenly be taken by surprise and lose your job and be given no opportunity to be better at it? And and that's the reality. When we hold back from having those conversations, particularly as a leader, you know, sometimes the consequences are very serious for the individual down the track because they didn't know the truth. And what's your experience with what happens in organisations when difficult conversations are not part of the culture? Yeah. So again, we either, we see nice, nice environments where everyone's really nice, but nobody is actually having a robust, healthy debate about anything. So we're not extending our capabilities. We're not, um, you know, getting to where we could as a team because we're all just tiptoeing around each other. Or it becomes a toxic environment where people are projecting attitude towards one another without actually saying anything. You know, people can feel the vibe. They can feel the energy that things are not good. Things are not where they need to be. And they're probably having side conversations 
conversations, but they're not having conversations with the person they exactly. need to be having those conversations exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah. That's, again, incredibly common where we've now got gossiping, we've got bitching, we've got people, um, you know, complaining rather than actually taking ownership and digging deep and having some courage and, you know, having a chat. So let's say I've got a difficult conversation coming up, Karen. Um, what should I do? So again, identify what are those fears um, and just acknowledge them and put them in their place because as uh, Nelson Mandela said, it's courage is not the absence of fear, it's acting despite fear. So recognise what you're fearful of. And then it's about putting some thinking and planning into it. You know, what is the conversation impact that I want to have? So do I want to build awareness? Do I want to inspire them to do something? Um, you know, what's the outcome I'm looking for and what are the most important messages I need to deliver? And thinking about how I can deliver that in a way that is respectful, that is honest. Um, so again, being prepared and then choosing our timing as well. Um, clearly, keeping in mind that's not avoid the issue and spend, you know, <laughs> oh, the time is not right, the time is not right. But, you know, again, um, picking a moment where our own emotions are hopefully under control, we're not feeling too angry or frustrated or upset, whatever it might be. Um, and, and then, you know, obviously just commit, step forward and, and have the conversation. What what sort of mindset should I bring to this conversation? Again, that I'm in service to, again, depending on the situation, um, but I'm in service to a positive outcome here. This person deserves to hear this honest insight if it's tough feedback that I'm giving, for example, um, you know, that at the end of the day, unless I choose to act and act constructively, this reality will remain unchanged. And we need the reality to change. Therefore, I need to engage in the conversation. Should you practice the conversation in the mirror or maybe even role play it? Absolutely, you can. That can work for a lot of people. Um, not everyone enjoys doing that, but I'd say as an absolute minimum, you need to have written down some notes around how you think the conversation might go. I don't think it's helpful necessarily to script it per se. Uh, you could script it, but certainly not read it. You know? <laughs> I've actually, I've seen, I've really? sat in a um, feedback session where a CEO had scripted out um, the conversation. And again, my advice had been, well, good, at least you got your head clear. What I didn't realise his plan was to actually read it word for word. So he sat there with a paper in his hand, his hands were shaking, so the paper was flapping around and he was and um, what was quite entertaining for me was the individual concerned was watching him and clearly had an attitude of empathy because he kind of just looked at me and smiled like why is this so hard for him? So yeah, let's not read it, but um, let's be prepared about that clarity of what we want to say. Now, what is one essential technique um, that you could do if you do get pushback during uh, this com uh, difficult conversation? And again, depends on the type of pushback, but let's say, for example, somebody is saying, it's not my fault. You know, you, you've said I didn't deliver on that, but the reality was it was that department or that person. Another very common one is, well, you didn't tell me. And it's very important in that moment um, to hold firm around, well, what could you have done? I understand that there are plenty of things that stand in our way in terms of getting our jobs done. Um, so I hear that feedback. But what I want you to turn your mind to is what could you have done to make sure we still delivered despite that obstacle? So, you know, again, it's leaving accountability um, where it belongs 
And, you know, so again, it's about listening for why is this person pushing back? Are they feeling offended? Are they feeling insecure? Are they avoiding accountability? And then, you know, sometimes we need to give people examples. Well, I hear what you're saying, but let's now reflect on this particular event or instance and drawing their minds to the way that they were thinking, the way they were feeling, the way they were behaving in those moments that were not successful. Let's go to uh, the day after the conversation. So the conversation went very well. Uh, Should I do anything the next day? Yeah, I do think it's important to regroup with people. And, you know, because what we want to do, depending again, depending on why we're having the tough conversation, you know, if your tough conversation was around their performance and, you know, you've agreed a development plan, then I think it's courteous, it's empathetic to say, how are you feeling today? You know, obviously that was a tough conversation. But as we talked about, you know, we can get through this. We're going to work together. So, you know, reconnecting them with why they should have hope coming out of that conversation, I think is important. Thanks so much, Karen. Thank you. And that's it for This Working Life. Thanks to producer Maria Tickle. To keep up with our latest and greatest episodes, subscribe to our podcast. And please rate and review. It all counts. I'm Lisa Leong. And until next week, keep working. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.